We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. WinBet is now live in all these states, and the excitement of Win Las Vegas has finally landed in online sports betting and casino play. From boosted parlays to live in-game betting odds on every major sport, WinBet gives you the tools to win. Sign up today for your risk-free $1,000 sports bet. Download the WinBet app now or visit wynnbet.com to start winning. Player and team developments we expect or hope for that's what we're talking about today on stealing bananas that's our show title for show three of the week that we sort of just talk about whatever we want to i'm ben gretch you can find me on twitter at yards per gretch you can find my stealing signals substack at bengretch.substack.com with me as always is sean siegel you can find all of his fantastic work at rotoviz and sean you have some notes for today i'm excited to talk through some of these things what are we what are we talking about today yeah so you mentioned we kind of talk about whatever we want on fridays but it is a little bit more forward looking last week we had a lot of fun projecting what we think we would do in the 2022 first round of redraft and so if you haven't had a chance to check that out go go ahead and listen you can see if even one week in the fantasy universe has dramatically changed what, what the first round should look at. Obviously, we didn't get as strong of performances from Kyle Pitts and Jamar Chase last week. We'll talk about Pitts a little bit today. But Ben, we're going to look at some of these big free agent developments as people are trying to kind of craft their teams and uh, get them set up for not, yet, not really the playoff run yet, but the playoff push depending on what your league structure is. You don't have that many more weeks to get in there and make sure you make the playoffs. That's obviously the first step. Then we're going to talk a little bit about some running backs, especially you you can win your league with. I also wanted to ask you about uh, the Panthers-Falcons game. This was one of the games that I watched uh, toward the end of my viewing experience, and it really stuck with me because it did not look like a 2021 football game. I have to tell you that. You mentioned that pre-show, and I was actually curious. You said you had some notes on that game, and I was kind of thinking to myself, I wonder what the hell these notes are. <laughs> because, Well, first down run, second down run, third down. It's like, can we run? It's like fourth down, punt. <laughs> Let's start there. The pass right over expectation stuff that I look at sometimes and, and chat about. Um, I recall, I'm going to pull up my article, but I recall both of them being 
well in the negative and pass rate over expectation. Um, I think for for Atlanta side, obviously there was some sort of reaction probably on Sunday morning to Calvin Ridley being out. I'm not sure if they knew that was going to happen, you know, before Sunday. I haven't heard a lot of reporting, but you would think, you know, especially based on sort of the way that the the trends went, like for instance, Kyle Pitts wound up running routes on 97% of dropbacks. He had not uh, in any other game run higher than 85%. Even the the prior game that, that Ridley had missed where they had, you know, he didn't travel to London. So they had the, the knowledge that he wasn't going to be in. They didn't necessarily expand Pitt's role in this game. Pitts winds up running around almost on every single drop back and playing basically wide receiver. It seems like they were sort of uh, adjusting. And, and then because of that, uh, also they went very run heavy. They were at a negative 7.1% pass rate over expectation. That was their lowest figure since week one where they had that, you know, debacle against the Eagles. And then the Panthers were even lower. They're at negative 15.5% pass rate over expectation. That was the fourth lowest figure for any team all season. You have mentioned in the last couple of weeks that they have been talking about running the ball more, how that really didn't work in that Giants game, but they went back to it here, right? They did. And you mentioned the pass rate over expectation. Uh, we have a really cool tool on the site, the NFL Pace tool. You can go and you see all different kinds of things, how the offense is playing, how the defense is playing, you know, no huddle snaps at the seconds to snap for the individual teams. You can break it down by all of these different game situations. So one of the ones that I pulled out that I thought was kind of interesting because this game was pretty competitive all the way through are these neutral pass run splits. And we know that the Panthers had this sort of epic meltdown in week six where Sam Darwin had a huge number of air yards, couldn't complete these wide receivers didn't play particularly well, but it seemed like it completely torpedoed any faith that they had in just approaching this as a normal NFL team. And then, you know, they, they struggled in week seven. Um, they were trying to like get things worked out heading into week eight, get back on the same page. And uh, I think there was a lot of hard feeling from the week seven sort of approach and game. And they were trying to work some of those things out, but you pull up the neutral pass splits for the Panthers in weeks one through six, they were 53, 47 pass I mean, that's a very sort of normal average NFL approach. Week seven and eight, they were 47% pass, 53% run in neutral game situations. You had mentioned on the show on Wednesday about Philadelphia and these crazy numbers they were putting up. Over the last two weeks, Philadelphia is the only team below Carolina in terms of run-pass split for uh, for these neutral situations. Philadelphia passing only 40% of the time. So actually still far lower, which, which fits in with, with kind of the cool facts you gave us from that game but uh, you know what that does is it creates a very difficult environment for the wide receivers to really do anything you had mentioned your frustration with the dj Moore non-touchdown you know again when you see those pass splits just crater you're not going to get the same passing volume in a variety of other ways as well darnell also not attacking downfield weeks one through six he averaged 312 passing air yards Seven and eight, only 118. I mean, you watch this game and you're like, this is either a handoff or it's a pass at the line of scrimmage. I mean, there was just nothing for these guys to really work with. And, you know, to an extent, this concealed this tiny little development where in a dynasty league, it's sort of interesting that Tommy Tremble, weeks one through five, played 32% of the snaps. The last three weeks, he's at 51% of the snaps. He was targeted multiple times in key situations. In this game, he looks big. We know he's athletic. He tested extremely well. Uh, he's someone to make a move for as sort of the 
the underneath guy, the second or third player involved in a trade this week, that tight end value is so important. He's someone that Travis May had been on and was encouraging people to draft in the road of his rookie guide that came out, obviously, at that time of the season. But one of the things I wanted to note here, if we're looking for a silver lining, and the thing about this is that you know DJ Moore is still going to be the guy who does score some points if anybody can, but they've had the fifth hardest wide receiver schedule to date the remaining is positive. Sometimes when we talk about strength of schedule, we're only looking forward and saying, okay, well, these guys you know, have a great run. They can capitalize on this. It can be interesting to look back from time to time too and realize, oh, well, you know, these particular players or teams, one of the reasons why their stats are where they are is because they've had a hard schedule so far. So fifth hardest wide receiver schedule, I'm, I'm trying to keep some level of optimism there. Uh, you're not going to play the Atlanta Falcons without Calvin Ridley most weeks, you, you simply won't be able to do this, which, you know, we saw the previous week where they were hammered by the Giants who aren't particularly good. But I also wanted to mention some points with Pitts, right? He was off of his air yard average of the past two weeks, which was around 125, but he was still at 89, right? His racer, four times this year, he's been above one. That's a good number. And this week he was a 0.15. And that kind of then contributes to putting up minus 7.9 fantasy points over expectation, which was around where he was in week one, where obviously people were disappointed as well. The previous two weeks, he'd been at 16.5. So, you know, we know that the efficiency numbers for someone like Pitts, just for the all players, but you're going to have some numbers jump around like this. Our concern would be that, I mean, without Calvin Ridley, I mean, he's going to be an absolute volume hog, but some of that's going to be offset by running more, which you mentioned. And some of it's going to be offset by defensive attention. When I watched this game, I couldn't help but note, and I was sort of primed to think this was going to happen based on what the stats were, but every pass to him, he was defended by someone and another receiver was coming over the top or across the side, knocking the ball down. So, I mean, he had a defender over the back coming across the front on almost all of these targets. He wasn't necessarily open and he's going to get a lot of defensive attention. So I think this is going to be tricky now for him. Although again, you know, the efficiency is going to bounce around. Yeah, it, it certainly is. Uh, I called his efficiency this week noise, and I did get um, a note from one of my readers that was like, oh, you know, I kind of have to disagree there. And I, I think that was a fair point. My, my point was more or less that, that you know, how extremely poor it was, so to speak. How, he had 13 yards on six targets. He still got the six targets. He still got the 89 air yards, as you noted. Still ran a ton of routes. There was positives here a two point, whatever, 2.2 yards per target is sort of what I was saying. It's not going to be that low. He's going to catch passes, but I do agree with you. There is concern relative to, especially the big games that he had in the prior two weeks. The other issue I would note, Pitts himself acknowledged in a, in an interview that he had sort of a tough draw with Stefan Gilmore. And, you know, kind of, kind of some cool quotes, sort of like, you know, respectful of, of, you know, one of the, one of the guys, I, I believe he's a former, uh, defensive player of the year winner uh, award winner you know one of the guys who's been one of the elite cornerbacks in the nfl for a long time he basically was just saying like look this was a tough assignment this guy did a lot of things i haven't seen yet and yeah it was challenging right and so it's like okay you know he's, he's got to learn right like he's not going to just be able to beat stefan gilmore in one-on-one coverage in his rookie season as a you know 21 year old immediately like that's that's a kind of a, a ridiculous expectation but the the issue to your point is that's not going to go away. Next week, they're in New Orleans. Marshawn Lattimore, we know from years that Marshawn Lattimore has taken on Mike Evans in all of the head-to-head matchups with the Bucks, bigger, 
more physical, tall, big bodied wide receiver. That's the type of cornerback that Lattimore uh, or the type of receiver that Lattimore as a cornerback can perform well against. I would say, you know, sort of neutralize. He's de- he's been pretty good against that. They've had some really good competitions. Uh, Evans had a long touchdown against him last week, even as Lattimore was committing a, de- a defensive pass interference on the play. Evans still caught it and scored. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like there's a reason last week that everybody wanted to play Chris Godwin in DFS and he ended up getting way more targets. I think it was like 12 targets to Godwin and four to, to Evans or whatever it was. Um, because, you know, you sort of just throw away from Lattimore in that situation. That's probably going to be pets this week. It's, you know, I mean, I think Mike Evans is one of the better sort of um, comps for what Kyle Pitts is right now. Like basically an alpha number one wide receiver who's lining up outside a bunch is a bigger, he's very fast for his size pits but he's not necessarily a burner he's just a big size speed guy and yeah anyway Lattimore is going to be the guy that he's probably going to see a lot of I would guess this week which is probably not going to be easy especially if teams are rolling over a second defender the next week they go to Dallas so then you have Trayvon Diggs and you know you have uh some concerns here in the next couple of weeks especially in terms of like number one corners and guys that can potentially be on pits and if Riley's not there they're going to be on pits there's no one I mean who are they going to guard Tajay Sharp I mean, that's that's who ran all of these routes that that Ridley vacated. Russell Gage ran a ton of routes, wasn't even targeted. You know, we talked last week about how he had caught that TD off his face mask. Gage is sort of, you know, just a guy, not not to be, you know, too too overly rude to him. He is a, a human being as well, but uh, not not somebody that's going to draw coverage. Taja Sharp's not. Uh, you know, Olamide Zacchaeus was in a, a, a limited role this week. He actually lost some some routes. Those, those guys are not going to draw any defensive attention. So Pitts is going to get all of that. He's going to get these high-profile cornerbacks, and their schedule leans that way right now. So it is kind of a really tough time from that regard in terms of how it impacts Pitts to not, to not have Ridley on the field with him. Well, then let's move from the situation in Atlanta where they lose Calvin Ridley to the situation here with the Titans and losing Derrick Henry. Looking forward, it's interesting now. We have the results from free agency this week Uh, in the FFPC we see a lot of bids obviously for Adrian Peterson and Jeremy McNichols with Darren Evans also being done Uh, what are your thoughts here it was interesting I thought we go through our waivers we didn't put in a lot for Adrian Peterson one of the things that I have in my notes from again the strength of schedule streamer is that the Titans have the third hardest remaining schedule that wasn't the case previously the situation here with Henry versus Adrian Peterson, I mean, the first thing that just comes to mind for me is that, I mean, Henry is worth being so focused on because he's Derrick Henry, right? I mean, somebody else going in there is not going to do that. So I'd be interested kind of in your take on some of these specific players. We know that the Ravens went with Le'Veon Bell and Devontae Freeman and Latavius Murray instead of going that route. And so, you know, when you think about Adrian Peterson, it's not just that he's old and not just that he hasn't been good. I mean, teams looking for running backs have picked up these other players who are washed up first. Now, some of that can be scheme. Some of that could be personality. You know, Adrian Peterson has had some things that are some red flags at times. He's also been mentioned as a good mentor at times. And so it probably depends a little bit on the organization and the coaching staff of, you know, whether that's a good fit for you. And some of the things that the Titans do with Henry seem like they would fit things we've seen from Adrian Peterson, but most of those things were from a full decade ago, right? And so uh, McNichols, somebody who now should come in and there'll be a lot more passing to the running backs. And McNichols would seem to be the high value touch guy 
in terms of the way that this breaks down. I would definitely prefer to have him straight up. McNichols obviously not available as often. It was also interesting. We have a league with Davis. The team is doing pretty well. Uh, it needs to make a push over these next couple of weeks because if it makes the playoffs, which is sort of right on the edge of, it has Saquon Barkley coming back. Uh, Davis, when he put in our waiver bids, Deontay Foreman was the guy that he was looking at there. So a, a very Davis bid. I, we love you, Davis. That was um hilarious though because i mean Foreman could very well be the guy it just was like if i had to guess i would 100 have guessed that that's who davis would be bidding on but what if you're not giving foreman that same credit i mean foreman is big and athletic i mean yeah com- by compared to adrian oh, no. right now there's no yeah question. i mean was a was a fantastic prospect a long time ago had the achilles injury i've been actually pretty interested in him at various times after the achilles uh was fairly efficient for tennessee at times when he he filled in a little bit late last year and then he was with Atlanta this preseason and I was kind of keeping an eye on that I've been really interested in sort of the depth Atlanta running back situation all offseason the answer there ended up being Cordero Patterson obviously um but I thought he could be interesting because Arthur Smith had him in Tennessee Deontay Foreman brought him over you know maybe he was the fit for what they were looking for for this you know sort of Derrick Henry role in, in the Atlanta offense that, that hasn't really been an actual role, but so you're on board too. We should be adding him on, on the Saturday, the Sunday morning waivers. Yeah. I, I, I wasn't even necessarily criticizing Davis. It just makes sense that it's like this former top prospect that he still has a candle on for, you know what I mean? That's just, that's our, that's our buddy Davis. I look the, the way that I see this very similar to the way that you said, but breaking down particularly McNichols and AP, which is that's where all the big bids were this week. AP is going to come in. They're talking. I mean, certainly the expectation is that he's going to get all of the sort of early down carries or a lot of the early down carries. So let's just assume that already because I'm going to wind up explaining why I, I would prefer McNichols. But let's just assume that that's sort of the best case scenario for AP because all of the early down work he is getting, you know, goal line work. You're basically hoping for this role where he's getting 20 to 25 carries and there's not a lot of change in Tennessee from an offensive perspective, they've talked a lot about how they're not going to change their identity. That would be a mistake and all of these things. At the same time, their pass rate over expectation is last in the league by a lot. And so they can not change their identity and basically have the same offense, but still have plenty of room. I mean, even if Henry was healthy, they maybe had some room to regress back towards something more reasonable in terms of that pass rate over expectation, which would mean just calling more pass plays, right? Uh, you know, calling more play actions or whatever, because you've established – Henry as this workhorse back. Certainly, I think with Adrian Peterson as the running back, you're less likely in in some of these, like you're down two touchdowns and you're still running the ball. It sort of has made sense for Tennessee at times because Henry has so many times brought them back into games. I mean, go back to the Seattle game. That's basically how they came back and won was big plays by the running game, which is just so weird in, in the modern NFL. Yeah, I mean, to be able to run it with Derrick Henry, with anybody, especially if you're behind, that guy has to be able to create huge chunks. And he's one of the only guys who can do it. So they can be the same identity at the same time when when you're down 14 points, you're not going to call run play after run play to Adrian Peterson. Like they're, they're going to shift back in terms of this pass rate over expectations that they're going to throw a little bit more, I would say at a minimum. And then the sort of the, the ceiling case for the passing volume and, and outlook for this offense would be that they're like, willing to pass a lot more. They're, they're more like a, a league average or potentially even positive in terms of pass rate over expectation team, even while like sort of saying they're not changing their identity. They're still maybe trying to establish the run and then going to play action, but they are kind of leaning into more, you know, some 
more pass heavy games or what have you. There, there are scenarios where that could happen. Still, even if they are still pretty run heavy, you have Peterson. People are very excited about the early down rushing and, and the rushing yards. That is a tough profile. We talk about this a lot with the high value touches and all those things. But, you know, you could get maybe 25 carries if he's able to be somewhat efficient at 36 last year. Um, was still okay with the Lions. He still looked pretty efficient at times, even into his 30s, even as a, you know, I mean, or I guess especially because he's such a good athlete and he has always been one. So whatever. I, I my, my mind is like, okay, this you're hoping for 20 carries. You're hoping for 70 to 80 rushing yards. You're hoping for some touchdown equity. That's probably like 15 PPR points. I think on sort of a median expectation relative to Jeremy McNichols, I can understand why people think that Adrian Peterson's the better play and would have the potential to basically in, in these sort of median outcomes, play more snaps, get certainly way more touches and enough more touches that even though they are low value touches, his median expectation on a weekly basis, is probably like one to two points per game better than McNichols. My, my point would be McNichols has both the higher floor and the higher ceiling in, in the relative outcomes for the two players on the floor side. McNichols is likely to now gain routes. He's going to gain routes in two ways. One, Henry's been running a good chunk of routes. I don't think Peterson's going to come in and run the number of routes that Henry's running. I think McNichols is more or less going to be the guy who runs all of the, the running back routes now, or a, a large percentage of them, right? You know, certainly there's going to be plays on early downs where they go to play action or whatever, and Peterson's out in a route. It's not going to be like a complete shift, but more in a percentage uh, basis more will shift I believe to McNichols and then also there will be more passing so you have a, a few more routes a few more pass attempts there's a there's potential for McNichols receiving role to just sort of get a little bit better that's really good for his floor Peterson's floor is essentially that he's very inefficient right away and they don't stick with him and they go to somebody like Deontay Foreman and this is sort of where in my mind Foreman comes into play Peterson will get the first crack but it could be in two to three weeks that they decide Peterson isn't it and and so now Foreman and McNichols are the backfield and then on the ceiling side for McNichols, it's you have the pass work and you get more of the low value touches. You wind up being the back that is getting a lot of the extra work because Peterson isn't necessarily doing it or because, you know, Foreman isn't necessarily ready. And McNichols is the back who has played in this offense this year and knows the, the playbook as, as well as anyone. I'm not saying that Peterson's going to have a long time to learn the playbook. The stuff that he does is not, you know, traditionally we see backs like him be able to come in and, and handle these early down runs pretty quickly. You don't have a lot of confusion across uh, different offensive formation uh, schemes in terms of what these plays look like and how they're designed. He can do that right away. But if he's not effective or whatever, like McNichols might just run more than I think people are realizing. Plus he gets the receiving work. The ceiling for him is a pretty solid overall workload. If that somehow materialized for him, for Peterson, the ceiling to me is Again, it's going to be a very low reception total, which means he's going to have to be efficient as a runner. I don't think he's going to be able to be as efficient as Henry, especially. But any, you know, any real efficient early down back, look at Damian Harris. Damian Harris is good, but not great, and he's an efficient runner on early downs. I don't think Peterson's going to be that good right now at 36. So he's basically what, like, bargain bin Damian Harris as your as your ceiling outcome. I mean, I just I don't love the the floor or the ceiling for Peterson relative to the floor and ceiling for McNichols. I do think sort of in that median range that people sort of focus on Peterson probably has a lot of outcomes where he's doing a little bit better than, than McNichols, but that doesn't matter. Like that's not what we're worried about. We're worried about number one, the ceiling and more than anything. And then number two, also, I think the sort of the risk of ruin matters, or at least for, 
for some of our like zero RB teams, the fact that McNichols is probably going to be startable most weeks the rest of the way. And I can't say that about Peterson, that he's clearly going to be startable the rest of the way or looking ahead to the fantasy playoffs, that he's clearly going to be startable. I, I don't feel that way. I think he could have some games where he has 20 rushing yards, no catches, no touchdowns since two points. So anyway, yeah, I, to me, it's it, it should be McNichols with the receiving. Like you said, he's the high value touchback. I think that's a great breakdown of it. One of the things that kind of pulls out for me in terms of the things that you're discussing there is this idea of McNichols running the routes that Henry was running. And, and that can be missed a little bit. And one of the things with that that happens is that in order to be able to run those routes, he also has to be in on some normal running plays. In order for him to do that, he has to play. The snaps have to go up because otherwise you know exactly the tendencies. right? So McNichols has to play more than I think – maybe some people are anticipating just so that the Titans can run their normal offense because otherwise you have it split too much in terms of this is the run player. This is the pass player. If we want to be able to do some of the things they've already been doing, they actually have to play McNichols to do that. The other thing that I think is kind of interesting is all we have to do is look at the Ravens to see how a team's identity can change when the talent profile of some of the players changes. Now, one of the things that happened there is that we saw, you know, it seemed like Tyson Williams was going to be the guy. It, it didn't turn out that way. These sort of washed up veterans have usurped that role. That could happen here with Adrian Peterson. At the same time, even with that happening, or in addition to that happening, the main thing that actually happened was that their uh, identity as an offense completely changed and it became much more Marquise Brown, Lamar Jackson throwing these vertical passes, scoring quickly in that way. And that kind of brings me back to a stat I was looking at earlier today. Uh, a number of the big points I'm talking about today come from cool articles from Corbin, Connor, uh, Bjorn pulled out of our advanced stat tool, our stealing signals tool, which obviously Ben, your readers will be very familiar with. But in Bjorn's article today, he talks about A.J. Brown and what he's done recently, that he's been ready to step up since returning in Week 5. In the last three games, he's been targeted on 33% of routes, earned a 34.5% target share, owns a 44% team air yard share, and is the wide receiver 7 in expected points. So the thing that we're seeing with that is that the Titans are arranging their offense around their star, and that's what we should expect going forward. That's what NFL teams do. They organize their offense around their star players. The star player now in this offense is A.J. Brown. This is going to be the Brown and Ryan Tannehill show, at least to a much greater extent than it has been kind of in that stretch where Henry was so efficient and Brown wasn't 100%. So that's the direction we should expect the offense to go in, just like what we saw with the Ravens. And, and that's something in, you know, in my Brown discussions over the last couple of years. You know, I think people know me as somebody who's written a lot about A.J. Brown. Um, I talked about this scenario where if Henry were to miss time, what, what would happen essentially? And it, you know, I, I think it was something that has not never really been baked into sort of AJ Brown's upside. The way that I was describing it a little bit this off season, it's very funny relative to the comments we've been seeing this week from the Titans was that I was calling Derrick Henry, essentially this uh, identity back concept. And I was even sort of applying that same concept to, um, some quarterbacks, like there's identity QBs as well. Lamar Jackson, Jalen Hurts were examples. We kind of talked about Taysom Hill earlier this week as that kind of guy. When he's your quarterback, he's your offensive identity to a certain degree. And my point with this sort of label, it's I don't think it's true for every player, first of all. Um, I think it's proven more true for Christian McCaffrey, but an example I had last year was that when McCaffrey went out, Mike Davis basically played like McCaffrey. They did a lot of things similarly. 
So some, that's not to say that McCaffrey's not amazing. He is, but some teams and players, the way that they arrange things are not necessarily going to change their tendencies drastically in a way that can create a huge shift in our perception of player value when a player goes out of a game. Henry, to me, has always been the poster boy for this identity back point. We talk about their pass rate over expectation being massively negative. They can sit there this week and they have said, they've used this exact word identity, which I think is so funny. Uh, I believe their offensive coordinator, uh, who is a downing, was saying that they're not going to change their identity at this point in the season. Why would they do that? That's fine. It's it, 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 it's it's sort of hilarious in terms of the way that I was calling Henry this identity back, but I would like disagree. <laughs> like they're 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 saying what they're going to do, and he's the offensive coordinator, and I'm saying, well, you're wrong. You are going to change your identity. That is obviously a, a ridiculous notion for me to, to to say and to make. But at the same time, they're they're basically saying we still believe in what we do, and we're going to keep our scheme the same. I would argue. Those runs down 14 is what what really is their identity. You know, that that ability to continue to establish the run and get big plays out of it and actually come back and win games because of that. They no longer have that. And so now the Titans are going to be more like a normal offense. So they can't be extremely negative pass rate over expectation. We just covered all of this stuff. But that's super, super interesting. And then when you think through what that means, their identity is going to now be going forward. This quarterback that we paid a ton of money as well, Ryan Tannehill, and we have to expect can help us win games in this wide receiver that we have who was absolutely elite. And to your point, uh, you mentioned his shares, uh, targets, and, and, and air yards. You can look at Whopper. That's a great way of looking at that. Over the past three league weeks, he's second in the NFL in Whopper, A.J. Brown. He's absolutely dominating the pass volume. They're going to feed him. They're going to throw more, and they're going to throw to him. I completely agree with the way you broke that down. But it also looks like, you know, Julio Jones could get yes. a little bit healthier. And so, I mean, you're not going to use Adrian Peterson when you have Julio Jones. Right. That makes the focus of your offense lean that way even more, right? Is that now your two best players are wide receivers. That that uh, They're going to continue to run the ball. They're going to continue from a scheme perspective to look similar. That's what they're telling us. I don't think from when it comes down to actual game situations and play calling and what we'll see from the numbers as we look back at pass rate over expectation – relative to the expected run or pass situations, I don't think that they'll be anywhere close to where they have been, where they lean really, really run in, in those situations more than any team in the league. I think they'll be far, far more likely to then call a pass play in those situations. Uh, and that's going to that's gonna change everything. It's going to make things look a lot more like a normal offense and a lot better for A.J. Brown and for Julio Jones, like you said. Well, then when we come back from the break, we're going to look at some more running backs who could help you win, or in contrast to what we think Adrian Peterson might be, running backs who can help you win over the second half of the season, moves you might make, uh, players you might want to stay away from, but just looking at what's going to happen as we go forward when we come back. Colm Kelly here, the executive producer of the Road of His Radio Podcast Network and co-host of the Road of His Overtime Podcast, along with the phenomenal Sean Siegel. The wait is over, the NFL season is here, and there's no better time than the present to sign up for a Road of His NFL Pass. You'll get access to all of our content, all of our tools, and everything you need to help you for that in-season success. As a loyal podcast listener, you can get yourself a 10% discount to a Road of His NFL Pass just by adding the code RVRADIO2021 at checkout. Or go to rotaviz.com forward slash podcast for more information. Let's go get those championships. 
I hope you enjoy the podcast. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Now, then, one of the, the sort of controversial backs on our show is Najee Harris someone that we were debating where to put him in next year's first round. We agree he's going to be a first round pick. Also what he's going to do down the stretch. He is the foundation back for our best team. And so we are hoping that he continues to do some of the things that he's done and to get better at them. Now with Henry gone, Harris now leads in expected points per game, 22.6. That's more than two better than Alvin Kamara in second. We know that Taysom Hill now could damage Kamara. It may be hard for Kamara to hold in there. Harris, as we talked about a little bit, the only back who's in double digits in EP in both categories. He's one of only two backs total who is in double digits in receiving EP. The other there is our buddy DeAndre Swift. Then as we're looking at this, Harris has the number three remaining schedule he also is in this situation where he's already had his bye. To this point, he's had the ninth hardest schedule. So we see this flip where it's going to go from being mildly difficult to potentially very easy. He's only had one positive game in terms of fantasy points over expectation, but the games have gotten to be not so negative, right? All he really has to do is hold in in this range where he's scoring about what he's expected to do based on the value of his touches out there in the game we're also seeing a situation where the Steelers are developing more of that identity that we just talked about that centers around him some of these short passes to Deontay Johnson it's harder for them to get the ball downfield to chase Claypool Pat Fryermuth emerging as an underneath threat as well their defense playing nicely allowing for this run heavy approach I think that we're now set up for Harris to have a very good second half of the season and to be one of the main guys who, you know, now that, that Harris isn't there, he looks like the running back for fantasy teams and maybe the guy who everybody else will have to chase in terms of what that upside is going to be and what that safety is going to be over the second half of the season. So you're saying he should be the RB1 right now? 
Yes. Ooh. I mean, I, I don't really have much to add. <laughs> I think that's uh, that's that's one that we we got to breathe on a little bit. I I mean, I think I think it's not necessarily arguable. Certainly, um, Austin Eckler uh, managers would would feel excited about him. Anyone who has Christian McCaffrey or Saquon want to talk about you know what they can do when they come back to Alvin Cook. We've talked about his tough schedule the rest of the way. Alvin Kamara has been really trending up. So it is kind of disappointing that when, when Hill's in, it's probably not going to be great for him. I think I'm with you. I, I think Harris and Eckler are right there together. I know you are, would be a lot more excited about Harris's expected points. Like you noted, he's got the, the, the double digit per game on both the rushing and receiving side. Eckler doesn't have double digits or even nine expected points per game on either side. He still has a really strong, balanced role but it hasn't been anywhere close to Harris the big change has been that that Eckler's been very very efficient and he tends to be but Harris has been inefficient all Harris really needs to do is be essentially neutral efficiency with the size of his expected points it does look really great from that regard I I should say as well that I expect um Christian McCaffrey is, is the number one, right? But it depends on, you know, how many teams are still there. I, just for the excitement level, I hope there are going to be some teams with McCaffrey in the playoffs. I mentioned the team that Blair Andrews and I have drafted several times uh, that has all of these superstar wide receivers and Rob Gronkowski. It is not going to make it, right? I mean, it's going to need like 194 times here in order to get through. And so we'll see how many other squads are in that position. Uh, in terms of players who have gotten you to this point and are going to get you to the next step, I think that Harris is in there with, as you mentioned, Eckler, uh, Kamara. I think it, it's going to be very difficult for him. And then, you know, we, we look at some guys like DeAndre Swift. DeAndre Swift has the number three playoff schedule. And so when you look at what he could do at the end, I mean, the Lions, as they get a little bit healthier on the offensive line as well, if they get some of these guys back, the offensive line was expected to be a strength. They've struggled with some injuries. If the line gets better and Swift isn't as reliant on, I mean, he's always going to be reliant on garbage time, but if his balance can get better too, to where he's actually a threat to score some rushing touchdowns, to have those rushing numbers jump up, then we could be looking at DeAndre Swift as a 24, 25 point per game guy. And that would really change things too, because right now Swift only really has this one path to winning. And it's an important path, right? It's the re receiving path, and it's the path that is really fueled by the game scripts that with the Lions are going to be very consistently funneling this. But as some of these other elements get better for him, the upside there is actually pretty extreme. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the, the, it, it, it's a really fun discussion. That's sort of why I started listing off some names. Um, I kind of went through the exercise a little bit and stealing signals in my head. When I was writing about Eckler especially, because uh, I think he's in the discussion there, but uh, I know you have some some broad concerns about essentially so much of what he does is efficiency, where, where the ceiling really is. And I, I think those are, are very warranted, and I think I would agree with that. But I started to think through these other names, right? Harris and McCaffrey and, and Kamara and Swift and, and who who is really – Jonathan Taylor. I don't think either of us has noted yet. Um, obviously, we love <laughs> – and Taylor, the, the number one overall dynasty back. And there's there's no reason he couldn't 
I'll be more efficient down by the goal line and score a bunch of points as well. I wanted to ask you about Saquon Barkley because we have a lot of Barkley teams that are hanging right in there. One of the things that I noticed as I was looking through some of these schedule elements and looking at the matchup tools kind of within the site for the individual players, you can click on the guys, you can go to the matchups, you can see what the defenses have done the last five games. So you, know, you see Saquon, he's got this great schedule following week 12. And so you're thinking, okay, well, probably not going to play this week for probably multiple reasons. You have the buy. You don't have a great matchup in week 11. But if you get to that point, and for whatever reason you're still in it, they have two matchups with the Eagles. The Eagles have been number two or the second easiest team in terms of expected points against. They have been not good in terms of efficiency. They've been giving up big point totals to the top scoring back on the other team every week, even though uh, some of those guys they've been doing it to are not huge names in terms of Hubbard, Fournette, Drake, Jermar Jefferson. I mean, when those guys are putting it on you, imagine what Saquon Barkley could do when you have multiple matchups in this push for the playoffs and then this playoff time period. Yeah, and we've seen him come back from, you know, it, it, it's hard to envision right now. I know people are are sort of down on Saquon, or I, I would assume it's sort of the the feel i get so i mean it's a good opportunity kind of to go back to aj brown where after three or four weeks we were discussing him and i tried to emphasize i know on some of our shows that through five weeks last year aj brown had been injured in week one of last year missed time done nothing and then from about week five on was a superstar and that that could potentially happen again for aj brown and it essentially has, right? And that doesn't mean it was I was going to or like, you know, I was right or whatever. It's just like, in some respects, it's the wrong way of thinking of it. It's just pattern matching. Sometimes things can be different. But I will say in the Saquon Barkley optimism bucket, number one, he already has the one season as a rookie that was absolutely dominant from basically start to finish. And then number two, he has the second season where he had the high ankle sprain, which has derailed seasons for people. It derailed uh, Kamara's season that same year, I believe, in 2019. Uh, really tough year for for Kamara, and you know Michael Tom. Part of Michael Thomas's injury, I think, was related to this. And when he tried to come back later last year, didn't have that, and, and now he's had obviously a lot more complications. The, the high ankle sprain has been something that has been pretty damaging for players, even after they come back. Saquon had that. And, and this one, this year is a low ankle sprain, but Saquon had the high ankle sprain in 2019, came back, ultimately down the stretch, had some absolutely monster play, uh, performances in the playoffs. Not a lot of teams that had drafted him, <clears throat> I believe he was the number one overall pick that year. Not a lot of teams that had drafted him were still in a position to be um, reaping the rewards of that. But it was interesting for a player that is as physically dominant as Saquon is. And, and it's, it's worth noting again that that he was able to come back and be that good that season. And then in 2020, he misses the whole year. But the way that that I would describe this, I, you know, I did the, the the running back dead zone piece a couple of years ago. And the first time I looked at it, what I, the point I was looking at was running back upside, league winning upside running backs. And I defined it basically three different ways. Full season points, a points per game marker that was a little bit higher, but had fewer games you had to have played at least half the year but for these guys who play about 12 games and are really really good i still want to know where those guys are being drafted and then i looked at guys that were even higher points per game marker but really dominant late season because we do want to know where these you know late season breakthroughs come from there weren't a ton of guys that fit that marker that didn't fit one of the other two for that playoff stretch but 
I, I bring these benchmarks up because Saquon, as a rookie, hit the full season markers. And then as a second year player, was one of those players who was so dominant late in the year that he that he qualified. And so basically both of the two years that he's played, other than you know 2020, where he gets the, the, the early season ACL tear completely, you know, wipes out the season. Both of the two seasons he's played, he he qualified in this sort of elite running back cohort that is pretty limited about five running backs a year qualify so anyway i'm still vaguely optimistic that basically the only two years we've seen saquon has done things like this that he has the potential if he can get healthy and stay healthy to do that again and it's especially fun i think because we have barkley on our team with pat and pete and that team is in first place in points and so we're just kind of trying to hold on right because if we can get him in there with the rest of those guys you know you mentioned the upside and whether or not Barkley can come back and do it you know what's the relationship between the injury he came in with and the ankle sprain you know probably nothing really these are these are separate elements if he can come back and get to where he even was in weeks three and four I mean, he scored 50 points across those two weeks and then you talk about what Mike Davis did last year and how that can give us a little bit of confidence, maybe just in terms of how the offense can support a running back. And then also we talk a little bit about how some of these zero RB guys can just jump in and replace not one for one, but at a level that will still win for you. Devontae Booker, since that injury, four game span has averaged 15.9 points per game. If Booker can score 16 points a game in this offense, when you put Barkley back into it with a good you know, schedule dynamic, there are just a lot of things pointing in the direction that you just mentioned, which is potentially massive scoring. Now, some things have to go right. He has to get healthy. You know, sometimes if you have a star come back and they're, you know, 80%, then maybe the backup still is just the better player. I mean, there's no guarantee that he'll be as good as Booker is playing right now, right? But it's almost one of these things where if you need him this week, some of the developments this week have been disappointing. If you can manage to hold on, if you can get through that buy and get the ankle completely healthy, then what you're looking at for the stretch run is extremely exciting. It could be very, very exciting. And I think you you, you mentioned Mike Davis' name. I think you meant Wayne Gallman last year in Barkley's role was very good, right? Well, you, you were just talking about Davis in relationship to Christian McCaffrey, how he played when McCaffrey was out. That's actually what Devontae Booker is doing in a little bit more under-the-radar kind of situation this year for the Giants. And one of the re reasons I was concerned after weeks one and two is it looked like you know, number one, it looked like Barkley wasn't healthy. And then number two, it looked like there might be some structural elements to the offense that wouldn't allow him to get this EP double-double that he had when he was such a monster player doing the things you were talking about with this kind of legendary upside, the uh, star cohort running back. I don't think that we have to worry about that as much with a Devontae Booker scoring as many points as he's scoring. Barkley's going to be able to do even better. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm yeah, I mean, talking with you more, I'm excited again. It, it is it is challenging, especially with the Giants offense and all these things that are concerns. But um, you noting how good he was in weeks three and four, I, to a degree, sort of forgotten that. But I go pull up his game log. I mean, he has that high-value touch combination that you want. And we and to your point, we've seen it from Booker as well now. Um, <laughs> our buddy Denny Carter tweeted out today that something I think I referenced on Stealing Bananas, that I was talking about Booker and – and Daryl Williams in a write-up is sort of the this platonic ideal of um, the zero RB back in, in terms of the high-value touches, running a, a high percentage of routes and getting six or seven targets and all those things. And that's a, and then also having goal line work, right? So those two elements, that's what Barkley had as well. Even as he wasn't particularly efficient in weeks three and four, he had you know 50 rushing yards both games. 
and he averaged about 65, it looks like, 60 receiving yards in those two games as well. And so he had, you know, an average of over 100 total yards. He had three touchdowns because he's getting that, that green zone work. He had five and six catches in those two games. That adds up really nicely. That's how you do well uh, as a PPR fantasy running back. That's why we're talking about Najee Harris. That's why, you know, we're talking even about Austin Eckler, who doesn't have quite the same balance, but uh, can can get or he has balance, not that same um, uh, ceiling as as Harris in terms of the value of both sides of that role, but he can get all of these elements together. And that's, I mean, that is where running back ceiling talks about. We've been talking about it for several years, obviously. But yeah, hearing you talk about that and referencing what Barkley did those weeks and then also what Booker's been doing, I don't think there's a lot of reason to think that Barkley can't come back in and have that really strong, high-value touch type role that we look for. And then... Can his athleticism take over? Can he make some big plays? Can he have some explosive plays? Some of the reasons that we're even talking about a guy like Jonathan Taylor, whose role and usage maybe isn't ideal, but because Taylor is just so good, that matters. The efficiency matters, right? And so Barkley can be that player as well. Exactly. And you mentioned some of those stats there. And and some of that profile across the two games will come from that big touchdown reception he had. But in the same way that you want that with Derrick Henry, and we're talking about the potential to have these massive chunk plays, that's what you get from Barkley, right? So the fact that he has that big reception in there, that's not something to be like, oh, well, you know, pump the brakes. That's actually what we're looking for. That's why you have Barkley to go with the, you know, this EP double-double, the high-value touches, this perfect profile. And it is one of the things that does bolster Eckler a little bit I don't think that he's necessarily the big play threat that some of those guys are but he is someone who can score from you know the 15 to the 20 or the 10 to the 20 in a way that a lot of guys won't do and the offense will set it up his EP numbers right now are pretty crazy but like I've mentioned with Alvin Kamara or his FPO and E numbers his points over expectation Eckler has done it in the past and his athletic profile on the offense sets up nicely to continue at least some measure of that Whereas I talked in, in a big part of the zero RB uh, report this week, really going over why that's really not the case with Alvin Kamara now based on how things are set up there. And so he needs that, you know, those EP numbers to be very, very high. He's not going to be able to do the Eckler, the Taylor, the Barkley in this particular offense, even though his talent level is right there. And one, so, oh man, this is such a great evergreen conversation. I love it. Um, two, two or three things that I want to add to that. Um, one reason Eckler's done that in the past, and one of the reasons I keep kind of going back to him and feeling this uh, feeling this way about him, is he's had uh, running back air yards, which are something that I think is really underrated. A lot of people talk about how most running backs don't have air yards. Their, their average depth of target is incredibly low, and, and they don't. They don't have hundreds of air yards, but it's basically do you get any shots downfield because your average is still going to be very low if you have 80 targets and 79 of them are at the line of scrimmage, but one is – 40 yards down the field, it's still going to be a really, it's not going to change your average in a, in a real meaningful way, but being able to get some shots down the field can create these massive plays that are the huge, you know, FPOE plays. And Eckler's had some of those in the past. I don't know that he necessarily has with Herbert under center. And I don't know that that's necessarily going to be there for him in this offense, but certainly had some of those with rivers back in the day where he would catch like a 40 yard touchdown pass. And that, explodes the way that some of the, we look at some of these things. Uh, Aaron Jones has had stuff like that in the past. Kamara, not probably going to have that. He did get one downfield shot earlier this year. It went incomplete, but we're not seeing a lot of that from him. And that is one definite element of this. We're, we're not going to see that from like a Najee Harris, right? And so 
that explosive big play upside. I think we could see it from Barkley. And, and there are guys that we do see run these wheel routes a little bit more. Anyway, I, I, that is like a very hard thing to predict. But whether or not that has the potential to be a part of what this running back is, does play into this efficiency side. So I thought that was sort of an interesting point I wanted to make. The other side of it is, uh, and I had said that Booker was sort of the platonic ideal of zero RB back. What I meant by that was more in terms of these uh, fill-in sort of talent dubious backups. I think I talked about this on the Wednesday show anyway, but he's not, you know, Booker is not going to be the guy that's going to have this explosive efficiency upside. Most backs aren't. So that's why Barkley can be really interesting in this role, plus that efficiency. And we talk about this a lot. You, Sean, talked about it with Aaron Jones and have talked, you know, all offseason that uh, it goes back to the Jamal Charles. Like you want guys that can make massive plays. And you, you just brought it up with Derrick Henry. So we're looking for the high value touches and all of that. But we also need to be aware, you know, everyone says essentially that running backs don't matter or, or there's a huge discussion about it. And I'm not saying that any of that discussion is flawed. Just but for fantasy, we do need to be aware that there are players that can make plays, you know, the running backs don't matter perspective or, or conversation is mostly about, does it really help teams win games? And a lot of times it maybe it, it certainly doesn't have a massive impact in fantasy. Those huge plays that the really, the, the really great running back athletes can make do help us win games for fantasy football. You know, again, go back to Jamal Charles, go back to the ways that he won huge plays go back to why Derrick Henry has been able to be effective despite really not a great fantasy touch mix ever other than the fact that he gets a ton of low value touches the reason he's been so valuable for so long is he's able to be way better than his expected points even as you know he does have really high rush expected points never really high receiving expected points or total expected points always efficient above that consistently can make these massive plays and the, and the big time guys, right? The reason why the low value touches can be so helpful is that if you're a Jamal Charles or a Derrick Henry or a Barry Sanders or a Jonathan Taylor, every couple of games or, you know, in an optimistic scenario, you know, twice a game, that low value touch becomes a high value touch because of how good they are. And that completely changes the week for you, right? So if you have enough of the low value touches for these explosive players, then you know, that's where you get the extra value and that's where you win your fantasy league. Also wanted to bring up cool points there then about the actual receiving profile for some of these guys. Austin Eckler, 63 air yards on the season. Najee Harris, just five. Right. And that doesn't seem like, 63 doesn't seem like a lot. It is from running back. I mean, the other guy that this really relates to is Cordero Patterson because he's actually splitting out a wide receiver and running downfield. This is why he's been able to be very efficient in terms of receiving FPO, he's also been very good. I mean, it's not that every receiver is efficient in receiving FPO just because they have air yards, but he's had the potential for big plays in the passing game, and he's made those plays. Not every back gets that potential. It, it is an important differentiation. And yes, it, excellent. And 99 air yards for Patterson. We've seen some key ways in which he's been able to capitalize on those. He made a very nice play again this weekend or or else the falcons wouldn't have scored any points then before we leave the running backs i did want to ask you about uh this kind of stealth situation we uh, again we don't want anybody to get hurt we talked about that over and over i hope all these guys stay healthy and uh, my main thing colin kelly and i had a, a long discussion about the broncos their offense and how dispersed it was on our Thursday show, check that out if you're interested. But I, then I wanted to ask you about the Broncos. They have the number one remaining schedule. And they've got these two very interesting backs. Melvin Gordon, I wrote about before the season, as someone who really popped in the peripherals. 
was better in 2020 than people realized. Javante Williams, just all season long, he shows up in our running back advanced stats columns because he is number one in yards after contact. There's also been this, this kind of interesting development, though, where Gordon, and this is something that we do see, I, I've talked about this five, six, seven years ago in terms of breaking down some of those things that we do see with running backs developing, where some of these rookies do struggle before contact a little bit, even when they have similar splits otherwise to the veterans. Gordon has been a lot better before contact, and that's reflected in his stuff percentage, which is 10% better. It's reflected in his designed gap percentage, which is 10% better than Williams. We saw him have the two touchdown week. Uh, Column was joking, and hopefully, Ben, this was not the case for you. Hopefully, it's not the case for too many of our listeners. Column was taken apart this past week by Melvin Gordon in his fantasy teams. Uh, that's not who you want to lose the week to. They've got this great schedule going forward. They have this offense with Jerry Judy back that, you know, at some point you would like to think they'll score a little bit. Now, Bjorn was mentioning in his article that Teddy Bridgewater he talked about how the first five or first week, six weeks of the season, Bridgewater was at 9.5 in terms of his depth of target. He had the foot injury week six. Since that game, he's been at 5.5. So, you know, sometimes we see teams shift a little bit in terms of their tendencies because the quarterback is limited and they can play, but they're limited. We see that with Kyler Murray from time to time where the Cardinals offense, when his arm is healthy, when his legs are healthy is unstoppable. When he's at 80%, they're a normal offense and they do something like lose to the green Bay Packers. Now, you know, some extenuating circumstances there, but very, very different. The Broncos here, I, Pick a winner for me in terms of Gordon or Williams, or or what are you looking for from this backfield? Is, is it ever going to be to the point where the Broncos are valuable enough as an offense that we could feel comfortable playing these guys and not just you know lamenting when Melvin Gordon beats you sort of randomly in, in a crucial week? Yeah, I mean, I think r there's like two ways it can go. One, it could be just what you just said the rest of the year, and that will suck in in the sense that like <laughs> you'll lose to Melvin Gordon some weeks. In, you know, uh, for for us and for our listeners that have Javante Williams, you won't ever get to see that real upside. That that would suck. The uh, I it was somewhat for Javante Williams, somewhat disappointing or, or a bummer, I guess, that they were able to pull out a win, seventeen to ten against Washington in a really boring game this past week. If they lose that game, they fall to three and five. They have the Cowboys next week. That you know they're in Dallas. I'm sort of expecting Dallas to win that game they would have been at three and six. Then they have the Eagles before a bye. And, and the way that I'm looking at this is if they do fall out of it, that we might see Williams then play more because Melvin Gordon won, never really been able to play a full season. I don't think he's ever played a 16 game season or maybe actually I think he did, did it one time. It may have been last year actually. And then has a couple games. Uh, no, last year was 15 games. He had a, a 16 game season way back in 2017 and then it has one 14-game season, a 13-game season, a couple 12-game seasons. He's always been able to play a good chunk, but he's always also missed a couple of games or typically missed a couple of games. We haven't seen that yet this year. It may not be the case the rest of the year, but I do think late in the year, if they're out of it, they might just be like, look, Melvin Gordon, older back, had a good year. We're going to shut him down a little bit and let Javante Williams kind of take it from here. That's the second way that I could see this going. But it seems like that will be very late, essentially, because they have this late buy. They're still in it because they had the th the, the three wins to start the, the the season against the Giants, Jaguars, and Jets. They're not actually a particularly great team, but they are very much in it. And they sold off Von Miller. I think they still think they're somewhat contenders, or that's what their beats are talking about. But when you trade away 
Avon Miller. It was a good trade, I think, from them. But when you trade that away, it is a forward-looking move. I mean, this is so hard to to really figure, right? I, I didn't hear any kind of rumors related to this. Uh, Melvin Gordon was not one of these guys who was being attached to other teams, maybe like a Marlon Mack was. But unlike a Marlon Mack, who they tried to audition a little bit, and, you know, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Budoff wrote a great piece for our site talking about how it's going to take Mack some time to get back. That's what it looked like on the field. But Melvin Gordon has been very good. And I, this seemed like the perfect situation a couple years ago the Browns move Carlos Hyde and Nick Chubb explodes. And the other side of it is you can, you can bring up Gordon's contract, but the Broncos had the flexibility in the Von Miller deal to eat a lot of contract. And they could have done that as well with Gordon. There's ways that they could have eaten contract to get better draft pick compensation. So that side of it fit as well. I mean, I, it, yeah, I agree. I, I sort of shocked. And I think in some ways they do still, Think of themselves as as contenders, if you will. But yeah, I was just going to add after the bye, they get the Chargers in week 12. They get Kansas City in week 13. You know, both the Chargers and Chiefs don't look great right, right at this particular moment. But they get so in their next four games, they get at Dallas, the Eagles, the bye, and then they get the Chargers at home and then at the Chiefs. If they lose three of those four games, they're sitting at, you know, five and seven at that point, I guess, because they're four and four right now. I mean, even that doesn't necessarily like put them out of the running, but it might be enough to where Javante takes over around week 14, week 15, and you're in your, your fantasy playoffs and you get a little bit of run there in week 15, 16, 17. And Javante could be an absolute star if that happens, but it, it does feel like it's going to take until maybe December or mid or even later December for Javante to get that opportunity. Maybe you know, Melvin picks up a small thing and they just deactivate him for a week or two to give Javante the, the backfield more or less to himself. Um, that's sort of the way that I'm seeing it playing out. Or, like I said, the, the, <laughs> the other scenario is that it just stays like this the whole year. It does, it's starting to feel like it could because Gordon has looked good, like you said. The, the hard thing there is just that, you know, if you do want to give Williams some more work later, you've missed this opportunity to perhaps build some depth on your team. The, the thing that comes up here is just one of the teams that definitely needed a running back, um, or it seems to me as a Chiefs fan, definitely needed a running back, is the Kansas City Chiefs. And almost regardless of where they are and where they feel they are, if you're four and four and have the same record as the Chiefs, uh, I mean, you you cannot trade Melvin Gordon. I mean, you probably don't do it regardless, but if you're both four and four, you can't trade Melvin Gordon to the Kansas City Chiefs. That would be a complete non-starter in the Denver market there. So we know that that was not going to happen. It, it, it's so this is the stuff sorry sorry but this is the stuff that's so, sort of so frustrating you're right you can't do that at the same time there's this reality that the broncos have only beat the giants jaguars jets and the washington football team they still have the chargers twice they still have the chiefs twice they go at dallas this week they have some other very winnable games uh they got to go at the raiders later they got to play the Bengals at home the Bengals look pretty strong i mean they basically have like two more games that look like they can so, like uh, not can win, but like look like they'll be favored in, I guess they're at home against the Eagles. And then later they're at home against the lions, but they're going to tell you that that Bengals game is, is winnable. They, they just watch Mike white company. Sure. Sure. They, they probably feel that they can win that one at home as well, but it's a tougher schedule the rest of the way than the games that they've been able to win to this point. It's sort of what I'm getting at, right? Like it's, yeah, you're four and four, but you're not going anywhere. <laughs> then we are four and four, but not going anywhere in our RV Triflex dynasty startup that we have. Uh, we did a bunch of shows about it. We're sort of targeting the future. We're willing to win the season if everything breaks our way, but uh, almost all of our players are young. 
the two sort of veteran guys that we were willing to take when they fell multiple rounds were Odell Beckham and Michael Thomas. So things maybe not breaking our way on that. We are four and four, which is a little bit bizarre. We won this week when, I mean, we're, we're trying to start our best lineup. You know, that's the way to approach it with integrity, but we weren't that excited to have won this week to get to four and four. Unlike the Denver Broncos, if you are competing with us to make the playoffs, we will trade you our guys this week. Send us those trade offers. But <laughs> is there anything that you're, that you're hoping to get out of our, our trade deadline here? The, the Michael Thomas and Odell Beckham. Well, one of the things is, I mean, these are basically just pure luxury picks for us. And it's not a big deal. Uh, we would be willing to trade them. Uh, unlike the Cleveland Browns, <laughs> who somehow couldn't get out from under Odell Beckham. Beckham's an interesting guy, right? Because you get the impression that he put a lot of pressure on them to trade him. And they're like, you know, we're not going to. It's like, well, if you think the pressure to trade me was bad before the trade deadline, wait until you see how I behave afterward. He, uh, yeah, that, that's an interesting one. He could land somewhere that, you know, recoup some value. That would be nice. Waved and lands with the Chiefs, right? He and Josh Gordon can be the... Yeah, I believe it was uh, Stephen Ruiz over at The Ringer, I think, that wrote a really interesting piece about sort of trying to hypothesize why Baker and Odell never really gelled. And one, you know, his point was essentially Odell runs a lot of these routes between the second and third layer of the defense, a lot of deep ends, a lot of, you know, deeper routes, and that that is not an area, even throwing to Odell, but throwing to anyone that Baker excels at. And his point was like, look, uh, you know, as much as scouts like to say this guy can make all the throws, there's not actually a ton of quarterbacks who can, and that's not Baker's strength. He he, and it, and it all fits, right? Baker's better throwing the ball to Jarvis Landry, sort of in a more intermediate, shorter intermediate, short range. He's better throwing to his tight ends, and that's you know probably one of Baker's limitations. I think is a really good a really good piece and a good um, a good point there. The the relevance is that if Odell does land somewhere, like you said, the Chiefs where he gets with a quarterback who can make those throws at a higher rate and a better rate. I think there is a lot of potential still for Odo Beckham to have some value later this year. Um, people are, are sort of, you know, trying to figure out what, what, what has happened with Odell Beckham's career. I mean, that could be a big part of it uh, that he just was not a good fit with what Baker Mayfield did well. And certainly um, was able to be pretty successful with Eli Manning as well earlier. And, and that, you know, would, would, make you think that you know something has certainly changed in his skill level or whatever it is over these years uh in a way that's hard to define for us when when we look at players you know full careers but he could be in a situation you can see scenarios where he could be in a situation where he's a much better fit with the quarterback and, and is able to at least be pretty valuable going forward was still drawing targets and volume at a really high rate had that game in minnesota where he was open deep for potential long touchdowns multiple times None of the fantasy points ever really came together. A lot of that was on Baker. A lot of stuff was on Odell as well. Um, but yeah, the, the, there could just be a better fit is, is sort of the point. I don't think he's completely dust or you know completely done or anything like that. But yeah, this dynasty team, you're asking sort of what I want to You're doing to a great job of building him up now. I mean, people come with the trade offers. Look at uh, it. How you got to explicitly say that? You don't want to say Michael that. Michael Thomas I, too. Michael Thomas, I mean, he's the best underneath route runner in football. He'll work I, with I any quarterback. did such a good job of building him up and you're going to just – call that out i mean <laughs> we're trying to get a deal done here oh man i thought i did that so casually no no i i i do i do believe that um to a good to a, to, a, to a certain degree with odell but no it's funny on this team we went really receiver heavy we traded back we built all the stuff we went really receiver heavy sort of in the 
middle and later rounds. We got Debo, which is great. We got DJ Moore, which is, has been very solid and, and things have not looked as great for him. You, you mentioned some of those things. I, I think we shifted to Pitts before I got to comment on him. But yeah, that's been sort of a bummer. I, um, I, I, I kind of wanted to comment on him because people, I, I think, I, I get more questions about DJ Moore than anyone. The touchdown, you mentioned the almost touchdown. It was a touchdown, period. <laughs> I just want, I wanted to put that out there. I watched it in the fast replay, Ben, and they don't replay the important plays. They give you as much uh, coverage of this guy running into the line for no gain as that one. In very fast motion there, it looked borderline to me. Uh, the, <laughs> the second point I want to make is he it, it is essentially that it's just frustrating that on a team level, his breakout has been stalled. And that's really what's happened because he continues to draw targets at a really high rate. A high, per, a high per route rate, a high percentage of his team's targets, a high percentage of his team's air yards. He's winning at all depths. He's doing all of the things you want, but it is hard to excel in this type of situation. And that, that's essentially been the story of him. You hope that some of this stuff fixes itself and they look more like a, a viable passing offense, but I, there's nothing about DJ Moore that you shouldn't be excited about. And what we're going to get if it doesn't fix itself is a great buy window in the offseason for Dynasty and another great ADP for redraft next year, and I'll be drafting him a ton again. I'm, there's nothing about DJ Moore that I'm personally concerned about, I would say. The third the third version of Teddy Bridgewater and Sam Darnold is going to be the one when the Cardinals go that route next year. I mean, the Panthers go that route next year. They have to get some type of a quarterback, right? I mean, like, I just, I can't stop thinking about whether they would have grabbed Justin Fields and how much better my life would be right now that Justin Fields and TJ Moore would both be excelling if Fields was there. Then you'd have to be answering questions about those two guys on the same team. If they, no, they, they would be Fields. crushing shot. I would, the, the questions would just be like, how am I going to spend all my money? What do I do with all of this money that I've won? That's, that's what the questions would be. Speaking of which, Ben, and, and for listeners who have stuck with us at that point, but aren't interested in Justin Fields or aren't interested in fantasy team construction, uh, for the playoffs here in certain formats, uh, we appreciate. We are going to mention quickly that we made the aggressive move for our top team, that one that we've referenced with Najee Harris. We had Derek Carr. We had Trevor Lawrence. Those guys, uh, man, the Jaguars game. Uh, well, again, I mentioned on OT that I think that was the perfect time for Urban Meyer to be fired after this past week. Uh, I think we have enough information there. But then... We were looking at these run-pass quarterbacks and what we wanted to do to get them back. <laughs> We'd actually cut Justin Fields the previous week. You know, you've got to be willing to take in that new information as it comes on a week-by-week -week basis. And if you make a mistake or you, know, you have to go back in the other direction, you don't want to let a decision that you made one week keep you from getting back to where you need to be. And so we went after... Justin Fields got him. We went after Taysom Hill, got him. We now have those two guys to go with Derek Carr, who has the number one remaining schedule for a QB. Obviously now uh, some concerns because you have Hunter Renfro and Brian Edwards out there with Darren Waller, who hopefully will be basically Kyle Pitts plus the rest of the way to carry Carr there. But we now have some options. We have some flexibility. We can mix and match. Uh, the schedule, the passing base schedule may be less relevant for quarterbacks like Fields and Hill than they would be for other guys. It could be difficult to pick that out. The first thing I thought when I'm looking at this with Carr, Fields, and Hill is that 
man, when we go down in the playoffs, we're going to have a lot of bench points. We can always look at those and say, that was the option that would have gotten us there. But we also now... <laughs> I can't live in fear, Sean. I mean, no, no, yeah. that's not, that's not, we're not, not scared of that. Just, you know, I'm very optimistic that our bench is going to outscore the other team's bench, so... And also our starting lineup. <laughs> well, the starting lineup, yes. We'll, we'll look at the starting lineup. But now we have flexibility, right? And... While both players have some concerns, and I, I am still you know, very concerned about Hill's health, and I'm hoping uh, for him that, I mean, that's the main thing there, the brain health. But with these two guys, as we go through the next month, we're going to be able to see which one of them, I, I think one of them has to emerge. And that's one of the reasons why I was so excited that we were able to get them both. We'll now have the player who becomes what we need for the fantasy playoffs. You know, Ben, you and I had talked about Fields early in the week because obviously he's been a player that we've had some strong takes on and you've been discussing quite a bit. He comes out, he has the big game, but there's still that concern of, okay, well, what do the Bears coaching staff think of this? And is there anything about this that will continue? Because, you know, one game doesn't get it done, right? But the comments from the offensive coordinator, the head coach after this game, they were gushing about him. I mean, that you can kind of expect, but the things they were saying about his rushing ability and how it changed the offense and what they wanted to make sure they were do going forward. I mean, these were exactly the quotes we needed to see. Yeah. You sent me a, an email and note this morning, or I woke up to it this morning. You sent it last night about um, <clears throat> Nagy and DeFilippo's comments. And, and uh, yeah, I, I felt the exact same way. I was thrilled to hear that, that they had been, uh, you know, sort of not, I, I, I've certainly not um, pulled any punches in my conversations with, uh, about Matt Nagy, but it is very nice to hear that he would come back from missing this and not be in some way, you know, feeling like they, <laughs> that field success was you know, with, with him out was, um, you know, almost something to stifle or, or whatever. You know, you don't want to get into conspiracy theories, but him coming back and saying, look, these things were all amazing and we want to continue to do them is good. And hopefully that uh, does show itself. I do think in some respects, uh, you know, there, there's concern this week, they go at Philadelphia, uh, excuse me, at Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh has a good pass rush. The bears don't protect. Those are the games where fields has looked the absolute worst. At the same time, I do think in some respects, we've sort of crossed the Rubicon. We are, we're beyond, I think, Justin Fields looking as bad as he had looked, or I hope um, it's going to happen again and I'm going to be miserable, but I, I do think, things progress. The quarterback, even as he's had his struggles, is getting better. He's getting experience. He's getting more comfortability, feeling pressure in the pocket and all these things. And as you get success as well, you learn what you can get away with and what you can't get away with and all of that. It's hard to imagine after Fields did what he did this past week that he's going to just be back to what we saw in the Browns game or even the Bucks game, which was just a couple of weeks ago now, frequently going forward. It could still happen. But the, the range and the and the potential for his fantasy scoring going forward, we have to feel a lot better about. Like the, things do get better for for rookie quarterbacks, especially. You go back and you look and you look. You know, I, I did this a couple of weeks ago with, um, you know, looking at Josh Allen and looking at some of these guys who wound up being good players, but also ones that didn't wind up being necessarily great, like the Mitchell Trubisky's. They did more later as rookies. And Tua, Tua Tagovailoa was one. He he didn't do a lot in his first couple starts, and he did more later in his rookie year. Uh, still feel pretty pretty good about Fields. I don't think he's going to necessarily put 30-point games every week going forward. But like you said, the, you framed it perfectly. We get both these guys for this team. We have two strong upside bets. 
two of the, I think, best sort of late round upside bets to be players who can compete for the, the top 10 sort of quarterback scores in the fantasy playoffs. That can be huge. That was huge for anyone who had Jalen Hurts last year. Uh, late late in the season, he played like that down the stretch. Uh, anyone who had Taysom Hill last year for his four-game starting stretch, which didn't extend, I don't think, into the, the fantasy playoffs. But right in that midseason range, he was very good for four straight games. You get a pocket like that, and you can match the fantasy scoring or be close to matching the fantasy scoring for some of these really elite QBs. And it gives, again, like you mentioned, that upside to where now without having to have spent on it. And this was something that we talked about on one of the shows as being really one of the big themes of the entire season was just how these early QBs really were differentiating uh, not their own, not just their own scoring, but they were elevating entire units. And one of the things that we kind of noticed when you're trying to figure out our bids is some of the other best teams in our league, uh, partially that was quarterbacks carrying them. You mentioned Taysom Hill. It's a little bit going to be a little bit different because he did actually target Michael Thomas very heavily last season when Thomas was healthy, uh, even though they didn't pass a lot with him. You know, their talent level at wide receiver this year, very, very low. But Hill, 29 points, 18.3, 28 points, 24 points. I mean, that is a stretch that will get it done for you. And Hill was actually the much more expensive quarterback in free agency this week. Sean, uh, Hill... Last year when he was targeting Thomas at a really high rate, I'm, I'm pretty sure Thomas's average depth of target rose quite a bit. He tends to be someone who pushes it more vertically. There have been the Odell Beckham to the Saints rumors. Maybe a better fit for Odell Beckham. Maybe a good fit. Maybe that's his number one receiver down the stretch. Who knows? But I, I, I love the way you put it. We, we think probabilistically uh, in any of these moves, and, and that's been the case with any of the field discussion as well. There's a lot of different ways that things can play out, ranges of outcomes, et cetera. We don't know what's going to happen. We talk about the chaos of NFL seasons all the time. What we have now, though, and the reason you said it feels impossible that one of them doesn't hit, it can happen. But you think about 250-50 probabilistic bets. Say they're 50-50. I, I don't know what the percentages are. I think they're probably a little bit better than that. 250-50 probabilistic bets, the, the odds that both fail would be 25%, right? So you, you, you've increased your, your percent chance of hitting on something considerably by by using a roster you know an extra roster spot to carry an extra quarterback in our case in this case and that's sort of why we went that route I think it makes a lot of sense and we're both very excited about that I was you had asked about the dynasty team and I was getting way off track but I did I did want to mention that we we had hoped to be somewhat competitive it's sort of hilarious that we had stockpiled all these picks we these are the receivers we took other than Thomas and Odell uh, I, I mentioned we had Debo we had DJ Moore but Juju Will Fuller Tyler Boyd, KJ Hamler, a couple of the rookies, and Ronald Moore and Elijah Moore, who haven't done a ton, and LaVisca Chenault was the other. I mean, we have a ton of receivers, but it basically is a list of the guys that we liked that have either had significant injuries or have not hit any kind of ceilings. And so um, you're asking, you know, what, what we might want to get before this trade deadline. I'm just looking at the four first-round picks and four second-round picks and three third-round picks that we stockpiled, and, and I'm looking forward to the 2022 class to bring in some more talent onto that roster. But, yeah, if we're able to, to stockpile a few more picks, that would probably be great because a lot of these dudes have lost value. That's been kind of tough for us. Well, then we have three players on injured reserve. We have Juju, Will Fuller, and KJ Hamler not on injured reserve because we have used all those spots. We have Odell Beckham, who is on the active roster, well, I mean, he's not eligible for anything else, but also not playing. And yet, 
with the start three wide receiver, start two flexes. So this is a start five wide receiver format. We still have Tyler Boyd, Debo Samuel, Rondell Moore, DJ Moore, Elijah Moore. And Elijah Moore, I mean, he's not projected for a lot of points this week. And, and obviously his production is still very tenuous on a weekly basis. But man, you look at the speed and look at some of the manufactured touches they're getting him. I'm very excited about Elijah Moore. If there are people out there who want to sell him to me in leagues, make sure you get those offers out. I will buy but those five guys, I, I mean, again, our problem actually here is that we're trying to figure out how to, to not win this week, starting our best lineup, and the best lineup is still too good, even with all of those flaws. Yeah. yeah. Um, too good is probably relative. Uh, we, we could lose, especially if, if Kyler Murray... Too good to tank. Not not too good to win, but too good to tank. Uh, but yeah, no, that's, that's a great way of putting it, actually, I think. We, we have a trade offer in for uh, J.D. McKissick, if you also want to make a pitch on why everyone else needs to beat them. well it's funny a couple weeks ago you asked me about him and i basically said jaden mckissick isn't it this year no alex smith uh antonio gibson running more routes on early downs ever since then gibson's injury has been so limiting that mckissick is back to running more routes on these early downs he is back to basically um really strong route shares and uh heineke is actually throwing to the running backs at a really high rate and suddenly he's the you know, the premier pass catching back in the NFL in some respects. So yeah, there's my pitch. Get those trade offers in. Then it's been a lot of fun as always. Uh, let us know any questions or feedback you have. You can also uh, contact Colin Kelly, who is our producer and my co-host for Rotoviz Overtime. But good luck in week nine. We've had, uh, like I said, a blast with you today. Thanks to, for listening to this episode of Stealing Bananas. I'm Sean Siegel. With me as always is Ben Gretsch, and you can follow at Yards Per Gretsch and subscribe to his newsletter, Stealing Signals. Uh, so much fun to read every week. We really appreciate it. If you subscribe to our feed, you'll get the episodes as soon as they release that way. You can also drop us a rating and review. And you know, if you're a super fan, you can refresh that review from time to time in order to help us improve with the algorithm. Also, Get that subscription to Rotoviz to try some of these tools I've talked about today. You can use the coupon code RBRadio2021 at checkout to get a 10% discount off of that. And week nine, Ben, I think is going to be the one where Stealing Bananas listeners make their massive push to the playoffs. We're starting to run here. Good luck to everybody this weekend. We love you guys. Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So... At four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable. It's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast.